This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio, on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio, and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk, directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Michelle Borba discusses her new book, Unselfie, Why Empathetic Kids Succeed in Our All About Me World. Then PW senior writer Andrew Albanese gives us a preview about the forthcoming ALA. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. And I guess this is an indicator that nobody's tired of paper books yet, because all these hardcovers are... Selling yeah. like hotcakes. Yep. Yep. We've got a lot of movement on the uh, the fiction list, the hardcover fiction list. Uh, new number one, two, and three. At number one, uh, all the way at the top of the list, we have uh, Clive Cussler with Boyd Morrison, uh, The Emperor's Revenge, an Oregon Files adventure. This is the 11th in their series. Pretty much every time we see Cussler's name on the bestseller mm-hmm. list that's up at number one, this is no exception. Our review says a high level of tolerance for implausibility is required to enjoy this particular installment in the series, um, which, as with all of Kessler's books, is uh, all about espionage and races against time and right. thriller excitement. This scheme is somehow connected with the search for Napoleon's lost Russian treasure hmm. using a diary the emperor left behind after he was supposedly kidnapped from exile without anyone realizing it. And even the characters in the book acknowledge this premise is a little out <laughs> there. <laughs> but the authors keep things moving at a fast pace, though there's nothing in this outing that genre fans haven't right. seen before. But you don't you don't buy a Kessler book hoping for something new. You buy it for hoping for a Kessler book. Correct. Exactly. Uh, At number two, we have Before the Fall by Noah Hawley. We gave this a starred review. Um, This is his fifth novel. Um, He's also uh, an award-winning television producer and screenwriter. And we say it is a masterly blend of mystery, suspense, tragedy, and shameful media hype. Mm. Uh, And it's about uh, the corporate jet crash in the ocean and uh, the subsequent events and uh, there's one, only two people survive the flight. Uh, one is a four-year-old boy and the other is a, a sort of insignificant artist uh, who saves the boy and helps get them both to shore. Mm-hmm. Uh, his life soon becomes an escalating nightmare of media hounding federal suspicion. There are investigations into terrorism and criminal activity that might have caused the plane to crash. And uh, basically this, everything terrible happens to this guy who just wanted to help this kid and save himself. Uh, But his only salvation is a thoughtful, deliberate investigator who focuses on facts, not speculation. We say it is a gritty tale of a man overwhelmed by unwelcome notoriety with a stunning and thoroughly satisfying conclusion. So great, powerful stuff. And uh, then at number three, we have All Summer Long by Dorothea Benton Frank. Uh, We don't have a review of this title, um, but this, uh, like, many of her stories it's set in carolina low country mm-hmm. um and this is very much women's fiction this is a classic beach read um and just to make sure you know it the cover has a picture of a right. woman in a sun hat sunning herself on the the deck of a, a small looks like a small ship there right. and uh right. you know yeah we they it was just, very they know, inviting they know very comfortable up. exactly yep. yeah so based on the cover alone you will know whether this is the book you want to right. take on that long plane flight or read on the beach this summer but you know it's all you know, family drama family love um you know the usual warm-hearted stuff going on uh, a little further down the list number seven is a hero of france by alan first uh we also gave this a star not really a surprise for first he's a master of the historical spy novel this is his 14th book uh, this one's set in Paris from March to August 1941, with the French resistance movement covertly opposing the German occupation of Paris during World War II. Uh, and uh, the main character runs a resistance cell that helps British airmen who've been shot down ex- escape to Spain. Mm-hmm. Uh, so lots of drama there. And uh, the book includes a French communist agent, a British spy, a blackmailing underworld thug, 
and a German police inspector, the most dangerous adversary of all. Uh, the hero must navigate or neutralize all of these threats, resulting in what our review calls a tense, well-crafted tale of courage, sacrifice, and wartime espionage. So, lots of intensity, lots of drama. Yes, there. and it seems that a lot of the books, with the exception of the of the previous one, the uh, uh, the Lowland South Carolina one, a lot of espionage. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, thrillers, spy stories so. are always yeah. very popular. Spy thrillers, and yeah. uh, I think they build on the sense that there's always more going on in politics than in the government than we really know about mm. and uh, this is it lets readers feel like for a minute they get a peek behind the curtain, behind the curtain. Um, which i'm sure in an election season is something that a lot yeah. of people would love to have right now moving back to the the beach read department we have the island house by nancy thayer at number 13 um this one has <laughs> i think the same person designed the cover uh, <laughs> it's really really remarkable how um how how is genreified these uh, these covers are um, this one's set in Nantucket, but uh, the same the same vibe. This time it's a person in rolled up jeans on a dock overlooking the water. But uh, again, you know, just yeah, the same blue hues the on same, the ocean and the sky. It's it's, <laughs> uh, it's really remarkable. So this one has more of a romantic vibe to it um, about her being uh, uh, pr the protagonist who's twenty nine, just moved to uh, Nantucket uh, for the summer and is caught between. Two different men, two different worlds. Uh, so a love triangle vibe there. Uh, and uh, again, this is this is total vacation fluff sure. reading. And you know, obviously, it's the thing a lot of people would like. Just below it at number 14 is Modern Lovers by Emma Straub. We gave this a starred review. Lots of uh, books that we really liked are popping up on the bestseller list this right. week. And uh, this is about uh, some college friends who all had a band together and uh, what happened to them two decades later. Uh, one of mm. them died of a heroin overdose, two are married and have a son, and uh, living nearby is the, the fourth one and her wife with their daughter. And uh, so this is uh, you know, kind of a, a literary fiction approach to the the college and where are they now story and uh, we say in our review that Straub spins her lighthearted but psychologically perceptive narrative with a sure touch as she captures the vibes of midlife middle class angst and the raging hormones of youth and the narrative could serve as a map to gentrified Brooklyn it's that detailed and visually clear wow. um, so uh, readers will devour this witty and warmly satisfying novel great that's at number 14. And finally, just a little further down the list, wanted to mention at number 22, The Darkest Torment by Gina Showalter. Um, it's nice to see a paranormal romance book creeping onto the hardcover list. We don't get a lot of them in hardcover in the first place. Mm -hmm. And uh, to see this one, a bestseller is very nice. This is her 12th book in the Lords of the Underworld Paranormal. And uh, uh, the reviewer... Uh, Notice some similarities to If a Man Answers, which is a 1960s rom-com about a young wife's attempts to use dog training techniques to bring her husband to heel. And uh, there's a there's a similar vibe here of, uh, you know, the, the classic theme of the woman trying to tame the man. And we say that Schulter's writing has retained its erotic intensity throughout the series and has a darkly humorous edge here. Uh, however... The story is excessively violent and overpopulated to an unwieldy extent, so right. the paranormal may be overtaking right. the romance aspect right. there. So uh, that's what we've got on the hardcover fiction list. Lots of these big summer reads coming out. Uh, it's an exciting time. Yeah, definitely much more on the fiction list than the nonfiction. Our highest debut is The Journey Within, Exploring the Path of Bhakti by Radhanath Swami. In our review, we say that Radhanath offers a light and accessible introduction to bhakti yoga, a spiritual journey some Buddhists believe can reunite practitioners with the supreme source. The New York Times said that the Hare Krishna referred to this as the Hare Krishna leader who's bringing the movement into the age of Lululemon. So, uh, <laughs> so, so there you have that. And, we say and that, that's at uh, number nine. Yeah, at number nine. Uh, we say that uh, Radhana's teaching here is highly accessible and a delight to read. Newcomers will feel welcome to Bhakti and intrigued by his conviction and compassion. And at number 11, we have a uh, social media phenom, Esther the Wonder Pig, Changing the World One Heart at a Time by Steve Jenkins and Derek Walter. We don't have a review of this, but this is about uh, by the two pig owners who own the pig. And uh, <laughs> So this is a real pig. This is a real pig. Yeah. 
Known, so, known to known to YouTube and Instagram. Is that I, is that I, how this I, happened? Yes, exactly. I and see. Uh, some pig. Yeah, some pig, and the pig's name is Esther. So that's at number 11. Number 12, Neil Gaiman. Uh, starred review, The View from the Cheap Seat. Selected nonfiction. We say in our review, this collection conclusively proves that Gaiman is just as accomplished an essayist as he is an author of fiction and comics. So this is number 12. And uh, at number 16, Eat What You Love, Quick and Easy, Great Recipes, Low in Sugar, Fat and Calories by Marlene Koch. And uh, these are great tasting, guilt-free Favorites, uh, all in a flash. And finally, at number 18, The World According to Star Wars by Cass Sunstein. And uh, we don't have a review of this. And this is, there's Santa Claus. This is according to the uh, uh, book promo. Shakespeare, Mickey Mouse, the Bible, and then there's Star Wars. And these are stories from Star Wars. And that's what we have on nonfiction. All right. Definitely a slower week there. But yeah. uh, we'll, we'll keep an eye out and see what happens next week. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. And this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Michelle Borba tells us how to raise kids with empathy. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Ron Miscavige, and I'm the author of Rootless, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Michelle Borba on the line. Her new book is Unselfie, Why Empathetic Kids Succeed in Our All-About-Me World. Michelle, I'm so glad you could join us. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you. This is a topic that I'm passionate about. Well, clearly, um, this, this book is full of passion and strong emotion. Tell us a little bit about what led you to travel the world to explore empathy. Well, I think it started actually on April 20th, 1999, when I was watching the Columbine High School massacre unfold on TV. And I hate to start on a doomed note, but I realized there was this seismic shift that was happening in our culture. Uh, from that moment, I started studying youth violence. I wrote a bill on how to stop school shootings. And then the second thing happened. I was delivering my recommendations to the Senate chamber when this 15-year-old walked by right after the speech and yells out, great speech, lady. And I was so floored. <laughs> Why would a kid like anything I said? I said, what did you like? And he said, it was that stuff you talked about teaching kids how to care. That's the stuff nobody's teaching us, you know. So you just keep teaching us how to care. He, on the spot, flipped my brain going, boy, is he ever right. So it was a pattern of almost 20 years trying to find out how do you teach kids to care? What's the seeds of goodness? I flew everywhere in the world and found it with empathy. Well, let's talk about empathy. What what are its traits? What what Talk about how, how it, it's exhibited in kids, how we see that. Well, first of all, empathy is feeling with someone. It's not sympathy when you feel for them. So what? I feel with you. So you're in sync temporarily with the other person. That's a miracle. We also know that our kids are hardwired for it at birth. But unless it's cultivated, it lies dormant. And there's where the first problem is, is that it's a lot of our kids are in sleep mode. We've been watching this trend across the last 30 years that narcissism rates have increased about 58% in 30 years of incoming college freshmen, and empathy has dipped 40%. You see it, though, even like in little one-year-olds and two-year-olds. You're, you're upset and your little one-year-old crawls up in your lap and starts to pet your, you know, your tears. Or I've had mommies tell me that the, the kid ran and got Band-Aids to put, boo, you know, put the boo-boos and the owies all away. And then what happens is that very many of our kids, because we're not deliberately cultivating it, it starts to diminish. And about five years of age we're already seeing 20% of our kindergartners engaged in bullying-like behaviors, which are just learned. We can flip that around. My goal is to try to flip that around in early because we now know empathy gives kids this huge advantage for real happiness and success in the real world. And I think we're undermining kids when we don't cultivate it. And how, how can, this may be something for a little later on, but how can parents cultivate this this empathy i mean you were saying that 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 it, one they they exhibit it but but sometimes by grade school that it seems to have kind of left them 
Yeah, I think the first thing is we push the pause button on, and what I'm really trying to instill in parents is that it is a trait that can be cultivated. I, a big misnomer is that it's all locked up into DNA or it's my child's temperament. So when I do parent workshops, the first thing it's like a lot of parents are like, whoa, I didn't know it. Okay, then how? I think the easiest way that we overlook is model it ourselves. Mm-hmm. I spent a lot of time on uh, going from the killing fields to Dachau to Auschwitz to Rwanda when I was doing social psychology research. And even though there were these horrors of horrors during that time, there was always these incredible books about Holocaust rescuers who risked their lives to help these perfect strangers going off into boxcars to be exterminated, and for heaven's sakes, in, in those camps. So then social psychologists started to interview them, and every one of them said in their humble moment, well, it was how I was raised. And it was this whoa moment. If it was how you were raised, what did your parents do to raise you like that? Well, they were caring. I always remember my dad as being kind, and my mom was setting an extra table for anybody who needed uh, a meal. If I did something wrong, my parents immediately nailed me. That's not how we act in this family. We are the caring family. So it became embedded at an early age, and I, I think what we've been doing, unfortunately, is putting so much time and energy on the other side of the report card to raise the SAT scores and the GPA that we're not exercising our kids' kindness muscles nearly enough. Well, I want to step back just a little bit. Uh, you, you, were, you were saying that you've traveled to Cambodia, to, to Rwanda. So tell us about those travels. Maybe how, how did you go about doing your, your research there and, and talking with people? And what did you find? Say maybe Cambodia. What, what, how did you? Cambodia was my, my, my wake-up call. I began as a social psychologist to study. Uh, at that point, I was studying youth violence. And so I went everywhere to try to comb in where the bad parts of the world, the real evils. And Cambodia was this moment that was actually why I started writing this book. I sat there on those killing fields looking at a, a ch- just this tree that had all these little ribbons on it and where, where children were beaten to death. Mm-hmm. And it just floored me as to, oh my gosh, is this the way the humanity is going to go? So it was the it was the starting moment. I then began to be uh, hired by the Pentagon to work on army bases and train mental health counselors on stress management for kids when post-traumatic stress has been really high on some of our military children these days. And while I was there, I took a side trip to Dachau and Auschwitz. But in between there, I began to to ask schools and their ministries of education if I could go in and view the classrooms. And what I saw was just incredible that there was, as the more poverty in the country, like in Rwanda, believe it or not, the more connected and happier the kids. You'd see them walking out the door, arms around each other, looking like they were comrades and helping each other. When wealth goes up, as I begin to visit more of our wealthier classrooms from the Bay Area to Manhattan to across our own country, I saw the opposite. Children were actually lonelier, and now we know that as wealth goes up, actually empathy goes down because you start relying on money and you don't need people. In fact, smaller villages, more rural villages. I went to a place in Vanuatu, this little teeny island in the South Pacific that is extremely one of those third world countries, but it's called by UNESCO the friendliest place on earth. So I had to see what is it that makes this place so friendly. From the moment I walked onto the island, everybody was, hi, how are you? What are you doing? Glad you're here. To the point I finally walked up to some kids and go, why are you so friendly? And their answer was, everybody else is. And it was like, well, that's what we're doing wrong. When you walk around our streets, I walk up and down New York, there's not a lot of people that are smiling. If we really want to turn our classrooms and schools around, best antidote is empathy. What we need to do is just build up the friendly factor, make it a cheers kind of a place where everybody knows your name and everybody's glad you came. That's the first step because it creates that caring community. And then you're more likely to have kids step in and help one another. You were talking about uh, PTSD in children as well, which is definitely something that can result from bullying. And uh, there's been a lot of recent studies on the effects of trauma on kids. Um, So when you talk about, you know, the poor kids are happy, I also think the poor kids are uh, also more likely to be dealing with various kinds of traumatic experiences. 
um, how how do you how do you work with that? How do you work with um, the kids who have struggled and been through difficult times? How do you start modeling kindness, happiness, friendliness? How does how does that work? A couple of things. I, I think uh, chapter eight in the seven in the book is on self regulation, and here's a piece that we do know that most of our kids these days are stressed regardless of zip code. We have never seen a more stressed out generation. How does that have to do with empathy? When stress builds, empathy dims because a lot of kids dim down the empathy in order to survive and rightly so. One of the things we may not be doing right is giving our kids the coping skills so they can keep their empathy open. And the best strategies I learned actually were from Navy SEALs the most elite force we have. When I was on those bases, the commanders told me they were revamping the training models for the Navy SEALs to keep their fear at bay so they could fight with the courage. And I said, what are the training strategies for easy ones that don't cost a dime? One is deep breaths. The moment you start to feel the, the stress or the fear come in, take slow, deep breaths. Many schools are now doing this, a mindful breathing, because it actually helps kids not only reduce the stress, but boost the achievement scores. So take a slow, deep breath, and then count slowly to 10 and exhale and let it out. Now, how easy is that? But when they uh, Madison put all of the seals in, on uh, MRIs, they discovered, lo and behold, their compassion was there. And they were actually less stressed as a result of it. Chunk it is the next one. They don't think of getting through the whole battle. They think of getting through the first second. So when our kids are in traumatic mode, and, and many of them are, tell them, look, I know it's going to be tough to get through that whole day, but just try to get through the first five minutes. And once they get through the first five minutes, that's called chunking it. Hmm. Once they get through the first five minutes, what you'll now be able to do with the next five and the next five, it reassures kids and builds efficacy. Or even a positive affirmation was the third thing Navy SEALs do. I can do this. Or for a little kid, it's I think I can, I think I can, like the little engine that could. When you give your children that kind of a self statement. They say it over and over again until it finally kicks in and they can do it without you. Keeps their empathy up, keeps their stress down. They're able to more likely to be resilient and thrive. I, I just had such an amazing experience of just collecting some of the best strategies I've seen anywhere in the world uh, to boost empathy. Uh, Armenia. I went to Armenia and every child in Armenia according to the government right now, must take chess hmm. from the age of seven on. So when you walk into, you know, a second grade class, I don't know the language, but I'm watching these kids with a chess teacher teaching kids chess. It's not to build their math scores. It's to build character, persistence, and perspective taking. And I sat there and watched these kids, and I'm going, this is absolutely brilliant. I watched one little kid look at the other little kid. You could see them reading the emotion off of each other, which is the first step in empathy. She looks like she's really not understanding which piece to move. I think I've got her on this one. You could watch them take perspective taking. It was just because of chess. Why are kids more stressed out today? Uh, Thanks for asking that one. It's a, it's a combination, and we're all worried about it. I mean, the first thing is, do know that one out of five kids in a U.S. classroom will have some kind of a mental health disorder by the time they graduate. I just spoke with 2,000 mental health college counselors last week in San Francisco. Huh, one out of three of our best and our brightest going off to Ivy League is going to have an overwhelming experience to the point they cannot function. Why? First, we're not teaching them coping strategies. That's the first. Second of all, we're not allowing them to just have downtime. Everything is so, so scheduled in their lives that where you really first used to learn empathy was in the sandbox. It's my turn and it's your turn. What we're finding now is that kids' sandbox has been removed from their lives. Many schools are removing recess from kids' lives to put in more time to study for the test. And as a result, when we look at the most literate countries in the world, like Finland, there's a lot of opportunities when I was working there for kids to have downtime because they realize that's what kids need. Parent stress is also building. So we've, we've seen that parental stress from economics to just trying to survive to doing it all is now filtering down to the children. So 
there isn't one reason, but it's a combination of factors from economics to trying to get the test score to being so pressured to get that right SAT from a very early age to have no downtime to relax. And it's another reason why empathy seems to be waning and we need to really start to raise kids who are more, you know, getting along with others by teaching them deliberate coping skills. You also talked about narcissism being on the rise. Um, there have been endless think pieces about the millennial generation, which I'm just barely a part of, um, being uh, supposedly very self-absorbed and narcissistic. Um, that's not been my personal experience with a, with a lot of millennials. What's going on here? Why is there that perception and how accurate is that perception? Well, unfortunately, it is pretty accurate. The, the other thing that was interesting is that I was doing a lot of Today Show spots on um, – looking at what Wall Street is concerned about of new employees, which would be the hirees coming in that had just graduated from college. And the first thing they actually did was to hire praise coaches because they were so used to being praised and not being able to collaborate with one another. I think that's the one thing is that as stress builds, and of course, this is in our, our Across the board, every kid is a narcissist. That isn't the way it is. You and I know there's fabulous people out there in the real wide world. But one thing is we got on the self-esteem bandwagon and we did it wrong. Real self-esteem is a combination of two things. It's, yeah, you feel worthwhile, but the other thing is you feel competent to cope. And if you don't have a balance between the two, what actually spins, if you don't teach the kid the competence factor and it's all worthiness, narcissism goes up. So what I'm really trying to do and on selfie is balance it by, yes, let's open up the kids' empathy. That's actually going to rise their, their self-esteem, but let's also teach them the habits. There's over 300 of them in there. You choose the one that's going to work for you, but that's going to also build the sense of competence. And so there's a balance between them. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Michelle Borba, author of Unselfie. So in your book, you present nine essential empathetic skills, which are emotional literacy, moral identity, perspective taking, moral imagination, self-regulation, practicing kindness, collaboration, moral courage, and compassionate leadership abilities. Tell us about a couple of them. Do you have a favorite? Well, as a former first grade teacher, I do. And it would be number four, moral imagination. Mm. <laughs> so, so what's that mean? It means you are transporting yourself more just in your imagination into somebody else's mind and heart and feelings and views. And why I'm so excited about it is that the research says that one of the best ways to instill that particular capacity is through literary fiction. Good old children's books like, you know, Charlotte's Web and Stone Fox, the kind that kind of stir your heart, mm -hmm. Wednesday surprise, anything by Eve Bunting that you need a Kleenex to get through. Not only do they make your kids smarter and build their vocabulary, but they also really do build empathy with our kids because it, it just stirs your heart. And here's the piece that we need to do. We stop reading out loud to our kids around the age nine, and that's about the age when our kids are stopping to read for pleasure. So strategy number one is get out those books and keep reading them as a family or find time that maybe it's just 15 minutes and work your way up to a half an hour where everybody reads together. Or as your kids get to be teenagers, I used to always get an extra copy of the book. If my kids were reading To Kill a Mockingbird in school, I'd read Killing Mockingbird by myself. And oh, the discussions were fabulous because we were reading the same thing together. It is one simple way that we may not be using nearly enough or films, you know, from October Sky to Schindler's List to Dumbo for little kids. How do you feel if that happened to you? They're great communication starters to get kids to really look at that third habit, which is perspective taking. How would you feel and what do you need to order to feel better? And the more kids think about that, it moves them from me to we. And that's what an empathetic kid is. It's we. It's not me. 
So, so even if you're not reading aloud to to your kids anymore, just just by maybe watching a movie together or yes. uh, reading the same book and having discussions about it might might do that. Yes, because first of all, they're great conversation starters. It helps you as a parent figure out where your kid's moral set is at that point and their values or what's piquing their interest and what's not. But the other thing is that it's proven. It works. Uh, Unselfie is filled with almost 400 footnotes in the back. Don't read the footnotes, but just know everything is scientifically (laughs) proven. And some of that stuff is things we've been doing for years that we've just thought not been doing nearly enough right now. And it may be one of the reasons we're getting that peak in narcissism and that dip in empathy. Have you noticed a difference between how boys and girls, say, uh, learn and respond to empathy? Yes. And it's a big concern that we better all do a workup call on. Uh, it was I'm a mom of three boys, so I was really concerned about this research. They watched moms interact behind, you know, video cameras and the, the walls and the mirrors with little ones who were daughters and sons. But we're talking about toddlers. And what they discovered that even at age two and three, we talk feelings and emotions far more to our daughters than we do with our sons. So what happens is even by the age of three, there's already a pink and blue divide in terms of emotion identification, which is the first habit of empathy. You can't feel for another human being unless you realize, oh, she looks sad or she's happy or, oh, she's so stressed. If there's one suggestion on that one is let's stop. Let's start talking feelings far more with our boys because that's going to be a handicap for them. And then the other thing that I actually discovered, Chapter 9 was how to help your children become a compassionate change maker, that altruistic leadership. I started um, researching just kids, interviewed over 500, and they were glorious. I was looking for who are kids that people consider them to be change makers, just ordinary kids who were doing extraordinary little things. And the fascinating thing I discovered is a lot of them were boys. In fact, to the point where I started feeling I got to find a girl story. And it was because the boys were doing things that were a little more risk-taking. And maybe it was because the parents were saying, go, you can do it. I think we still have that gender divide going. So all kids need to find something that they love and they're passionate about to go and do. But if there's a way to rewind this, we got to talk feelings far more with our sons than with our daughters. So um, I I think the original question about whether boys and girls learn empathy differently really becomes a question of how we teach it differently to boys and girls that these are this is this is from the top down this is parents saying oh well you know you're a big boy don't cry um and you know to little girls well you know don't you want to collaborate don't you want to you know work work with these other kids share nicer um and uh this is this is really about how we as adults approach the topic. Uh, you know what? I think you, you really nailed it right there because I was, I was combing the research on that. Uh, almost all the scientists who were doing with uh, toddlers, by the way, the most profound research coming out is our littlest ones. Mm-hmm. Amazing what they're discovering about our, our babies and our toddlers and how much more they are soaking in emotions. But they said... At the very beginning, you can see there's almost the same empathy levels, and then something happens, there's a slip that begins to happen. And I think a lot of it is our parenting. And it's still we haven't figured out, hey, let's all make sure that we're talking to our boys a lot more about empathy and what you can do to make a difference from a young, young age. So what happens when, when, say, you're working with your you know, son or daughter and, and you see that perhaps the child isn't developing um, uh, the same empathetic, or, or, or empathetic skills or, or reactions that you would like that you might seem that they see, just seem to be lacking? Well, a couple of things. First of all, we do know, by the way, that around tween levels, this is going to be a shock to no one. Empathy levels go down a little bit. It doesn't mean they're going to stay down, but we need to work on it a little more. And service projects, particularly pairing tweens with other peers, mm. seems to be the way to keep moving them up. There's there's some points and trajectories in our children's lives when they do take a wane that's a natural wane, and it just means we need to work on it a little more. That said, 
there's also another piece to this, to your question that's critical. And that is when you see that your child's empathy levels are really low and everything that you're doing, they're, they're not getting teary-eyed when that everybody's crying over that movie or they seem to sneer or laugh when that other little boy gets hurt or they just don't really want to point out the moment to care or look like they don't care if grandma's hurt. Those are moments to say, let me get some help. Because I, I think what we also know is heavier schooling and empathy at a younger age will help even our children who seem to be going off the wrong path. And I hate to say it, but the extreme level is sociopathic behavior patterns. We can rule them in. I read a book by Jonathan Kellerman that was called Savage Spawn, and he'd studied all school shooters. And he discovered that a few of them, yes, clearly were sociopathics. But he said if they'd been heavier schooled in empathy at an early age, we can make a difference. What they're now using is one of the most amazing things is uh, with puppies, helping kids not work with their own peer, but work down five levels of take care of a little animal or a kitten, but particularly a puppy. They're even using that as a puppies in prison huh. experiment. With uh, And then they came in afterwards when they the prisoners in New York system were training puppies and what they would actually do, which was brilliant, is that train the puppy so that someone would want to adopt the puppy because if you don't want to adopt the puppy, we have a surplus of them and a lot of these puppies were having to put to death. Well, okay, I'm going to train the puppy. But what they made the, the prisoners do was actually keep a log of what works for the puppy, what works, what kind of voice tone or what signals should I use, which is actually powerful because they were going in and they were really learning empathy by reading the emotional literacy off the puppy. NYU then came in and looked at the rates of empathy, and my gosh, by golly, they went way up. And when they interviewed the prisoners, they all said it was the first time I felt like I was making a difference. That's a great thing for an at-risk child is to help them feel like they can make a difference on someone else's life. There's hospice programs that are an at-risk group of juveniles in uh, Long Beach. What they're doing there is having the kids in a movie class, because every kid showed up for that one, because they all want to be Steven Spielbergs when they grow up. But what the brilliant teacher did was say, okay, you're going to make a movie, but you're going to go adopt a hospice patient, and you're going to make a movie on their life by interviewing their family. And then you're going to present that movie as a team to the hospice patient's family. Well, they made sure that the kids were there to watch the impact on the family and you saw this transformation happening with the kids because they realized that they'd made a difference on somebody else's life. Look for those concrete little moments because best transformation in empathy is face-to-face. -face. It's not collecting 50,000 coins to send to Biafra. That will work for the kid who's highly empathetic, and that's abstract. But all of the kids that I interviewed said the moment that was transformational was when he gave the overcoat to the first man who was cold and the look on the man's face was so much, oh my gosh, thank you, that I had to do it again and again and again. They get this helper's high and there's no stopping them. So that, that positive feedback loop really works. It really works. I love the phrase helper's high. You can also do that as a family. You don't have to have your child go off and that's what we do too often, go off and do it because it looks good on an Ivy League resume, but do it because you're a charitable family. You can just put a box by your door and keep gently used toys or books or clothes. And then when the box is filled, let's go deliver it to that family. It's the delivering it to the family. I remember doing that with my, my sons and we brought one of their friends with us when they were in the third grade. His letter res when he went off to college was to thank his father for giving him the opportunity to realize that there was families who were needy. He never had seen such poverty, and it was right around his own neighborhood. Sometimes we, we rob our kids of those moments to see a different side or a different view because we're more likely to empathize with those in our own social hub, those like us. One of the things that you want to do to really keep empathy open is expose your kids to different views and different experiences because it's a we world and it's a diverse world. So if everybody took your advice for the next few generations and we built this wonderful empathic utopia, do you, do you have a vision of what, what that would look like, the world oh, where we all empathize? Oh, God. Yes, it would be humanity. I think empathy is really the glue that holds a civilized society together. Think about it, because it's at the base. 
And when empathy goes, then racism and bullying and aggression go up and depersonalization sets in, apathy sets in, what you'd be having is more like that Vanuatu. How you doing? Glad to see you. What's going on? You'd have healthier people mentally, says all of the research, which is one piece of the empathy advantage. You'd have happier kids because it's not stuff you give kids that makes them happy. It's really knowing that I can make a difference or give back. You'd have actually more successful kids who have better relationships with others. It, it would be, I, I really am convinced, a happier world. That's a, that's a wonderful vision. I love the the idea of that. Joy everywhere. Yeah, joy. Imagine that. So, <laughs> But it's doable. It is doable. And this is the piece that I think we've got to keep in mind. It, it isn't one parent doing it. What I would strongly suggest, and this is what's happening that's really kind of a neat thing, is there's a lot of parents who are now getting together going, this is what is wrong. We're trying to do this alone. Let's raise our kids sort of together. Let's bring back the village. And maybe it's just a once-a-week book club where you read on selfie together or you discuss, what are some things in our community we can do together? How do we get our kids together? so they can do good things together. And what you'll actually be doing is raising up a generation of kids together who are good kids. And do you have a suggestion for a good concrete first step, especially for parents who have had to kind of learn empathy on their own because they weren't taught it by their parents? Well, the interesting thing that's probably if there's a a gold mine in all of this is that Unselfie does have really dozens of habits on how to stand up to bullies or how to calm down or how to be more socially literate. But if you do the habit by teaching it to your child, there's a payoff. And that is you actually learn it yourself. So go through and for heaven's sakes, just choose one habit at a time or your kid will never let you read another book. But just do one (laughs) habit and do it like a minute a day for around 21 days. And what you're going to discover is that It opens up your child's heart. They'll start using the habit without you, which is exactly what you want, not having you always be there as a kid's reminder. But you'll also find a difference in yourself. You'll become more empathetic and use the same habits so that you'll start tuning in to people a little more yourself. We've been talking with Michelle Borba. You can find her book, Unselfie, in stores right now. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you are so welcome. Thank you. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW senior writer Andrew Albanese gives us a preview of the forthcoming ALA in Orlando, Florida. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Richard Zacks, the author of Chasing the Last Laugh, and we're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. For every week, we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today's senior writer, Andrew Albanese, is joining us once again, this time to talk about the upcoming ALA conference, which is going to be in Orlando, Florida. That's correct, June 23rd to 28th. So a little bit steamy. A little bit steamy. A little swampy. And a little controversial, I heard. Absolutely, yeah, a little bit controversial. Um, By now, I think... The controversies died down a little bit, but librarians who are always a fairly activist community after Trayvon Martin uh, was murdered by George Zimmerman, uh, they moved to move the conference out of Orlando in opposition to Florida stand your ground laws. Ultimately, the ALA looked at the issue and they decided that the penalties and fees, which would have run into the hundreds of thousands, were just too great. Plus, they couldn't secure another location. Uh, in time to do all the planning that's necessary. So they decided to keep it there. Um, however, the, the, the move to get the, the meeting out of Orlando was made by the Black Caucus of the American Library Association. Mm-hmm. Um, it still remains a bit of an issue, and we'll, we'll see if that comes up at all at the, at the meeting once we're there. Is right. that being reflected in the programming at all? Do you have a sense of that? It's an extremely diverse program this mm-hmm. year, but it always is yeah. for the librarians. And, you know, this is not the kind of thing that librarians are strangers to. Librarians are very activist with where they they hold their meetings. In Toronto, uh, during the SARS epidemic, they refused to move the meeting when everyone else was canceling going to Toronto. They made a statement uh, mm. by continuing to go there. And it was not a very well-attended meeting, but they earned a lot of plaudits for actually standing true and going. Uh, they did the same thing by go, they were the first convention to go back to New Orleans after Hurricanes Katrina and Rita. And the people of New Orleans have still not forgotten what the librarians did for them with that conference. Right. And very recently, in September, there's a 
branch of the American Library Associations, the uh, it's the ALSC, and uh, escapes me. It's a children's librarians group. Uh, it escapes me exactly what the ALSC stands for. They had a, a meeting scheduled for North Carolina in September, and they just pulled the plug on it in opposition to HB two. Right. Right. Wow. So, what is plan? What is uh? What, what are they planning for the the conference? What might be some of the highlights? About seven seven hundred exhibitors on the show floor. Two thousand events, including panels and author signings. Uh, you know, a, a good ALA these days will get 20,000 attendants. Right. Um, right. I'm not sure that we're going to get 20,000 in Orlando this year, but it's a very strong program. For me, the highlights on the main speaker stage are going to be Michael Eric Dyson, who mm-hmm. I'm a fan of, and Margaret Atwood, who mm, I'm very nice. really excited wow, to hear great. speak. And, you know, two very young speakers. And when I say very young, I mean very young. Maya Penn, who was a teenager that started her own eco-friendly clothing company at the age of eight. Don't you feel like a slacker? No. <laughs> uh, she's coming out with a memoir uh, from Simon & Schuster sometime this summer, I believe, wow. uh, which she wrote at the age of 15. She'll be 16. She's 16 now. And uh, another speaker on the main stage is Jazz Jennings, who as a five-year-old transitioned to life as a girl mm-hmm. and is now uh, a leader in the transgender advocacy movement and has a memoir coming out. Um, so these are two really amazing wow. teenagers who are going to, uh, I think, really inspire librarians. That's wonderful. Great stuff. Good for them for bringing those girls in. That's great. Great stuff. Yeah. They're, you know, the ALA, the librarians are very active and they're very interested in, in these kinds of causes and just by doing right. You know, this is the main thing that libraries do is they want to see goodness and justice in the world. And that really reflects in the program. Now, as I, as I recall, literacy and digital literacy have also been big focuses recently. What do, Are there any programs planned around that? Do you know if that's going to be a topic of conversation? Almost exclusively. <laughs> well, all, all right then. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there are so many of those. Uh, you know, this year is the 140th anniversary of the ALA meeting. Uh, 103 librarians in Philadelphia wow. in 1876 was the first meeting. That was in October. In 140 years, or for the first, I would guess, you know, for the last century, maybe, things haven't changed that much in libraries. I mean, we had some automations and some things, but largely it was around collecting materials. Right. In the last decade, the pace of change has really accelerated. In fact, from the last time the ALA was in Orlando in 2004, it's a completely different meeting. Uh, We now have mobile phones. I mean, we had mobile phones, but we have smartphones, maker spaces in libraries, app development tablets. I mean, just the way we're, you know, getting content now is almost completely moved to digital. Uh, And it's created some big problems. Also big data. I mean, archivists, you think even 12 years ago, archivists didn't have the problem they have now with the kind of data that's being generated digitally only. I mean, how do you store your history when it's being created on your phone? Right. I mean, I have 3000 pictures of my kids on my phone right now. They don't exist anywhere else. And when, you know, I no longer can access that cloud. Right. Yeah. That's gone. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Wow. Well, that's great. So now we also have some some uh, news in D.C. about librarians. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> this week, the Senate, a Senate committee voted to uh, recommend that the full Senate approve the nomination of Carla Hayden as the 14th librarian of Congress. Uh, so we saw, you know, one glass ceiling shatter with the nomination of uh, Hillary Clinton as right. president. And here's a couple more ceiling shattering. Uh, Hayden will be the first African-American and the first woman to serve in the librarian of Congress role. She's also the first term-limited librarian of Congress. The one thing that Congress could get together on to do this year was to knock, to actually put a term limit of 10 years on the librarian of Congress job. So how long have librarians usually held that job? It's become de facto a lifetime appointment. And there's only been 14 or 13 of them, excuse me, in the history of the office, which started in 1802. So they've held on to them for pretty long. In fact, there's very rarely been librarians in that office. In fact, Carla Hayden will also be the first professional librarian to hold the post in over 60 years. So librarians are understandably stoked about having a librarian and the first African-American and the first woman in that job. Not to mention she's an extraordinary leader and extremely well-respected, and they expect big things of her. She has a big job ahead of her. The Library of Congress is, you know, it's not known for being terribly digitally savvy. And I think that they're looking for her to transform the Library of Congress into, if not a library of the people, which really wasn't its mandate when it started, to at least have a a greater influence on how libraries develop in our country, to be a national voice for libraries. 
Well, that's very exciting. I'm excited. The idea of a, a librarian being so highly placed to maybe knock some heads together <laughs> in the government. And, and uh, we could certainly use someone in Congress occasionally telling people to shush. I do wonder if she's going to get herself into some <laughs> political trouble because, frankly, she, she she's had her run-ins with Congress. She yeah. was a, in staunch opposition, in opposition to the Patriot Act in 2003. And uh, it, it, it caused her some issues. Wow. Um, those were not a problem with her confirmation, at least not so far. I don't know if any grudges, if somebody will put an anonymous hold on her, on her vote or anything. Well, that's very exciting news. And uh, anything else that we should know about upcoming ALA stuff or uh, other library news? Well, Monday's issue of PW and online will have our preview. And there's some great stories in there. For those of you who are not going to ALA, um, you'll, you'll find a couple of interviews and they're interesting. But one thing we did was we did a survey. Uh, after BEA, during BEA actually this year, and just wanted to get a sense of how libraries and librarians were buying. And some of the good news there is that the budgets appear to be stabilizing. Oh, that's good. Yeah. So we, we're seeing that like a full third, 35% actually of respondents said that their budgets had increased over the last three-year period. 52% had said that they were flat. Um, but there's still a large number of libraries that are facing local difficulties. Uh, and to that end, I would point out that there was an article in Monday's issue about an organization called Every Library that I would recommend listeners check out. Every Library is a national political action committee that's devoted to advocating for libraries at the local level. So we all talk about, we just talked about the Librarian of Congress, and when we talk about libraries, it's often a national discussion, but 90% of all local library funding comes at the local level, often within a single zip code. So really? what every library does is it harnesses national support for libraries like me. I'm a library lover. Um, to I'm able to donate, and they're able to take those resources and actually lobby on the local level uh, directly to the voters to make the case as to why they should pass that local bond initiative and fund their library. So they do great work. Uh, you can read all about them in Monday's issue of PW, and it's a political season. So get political for libraries. Yeah, excellent. Great. Well, Andrew, thank you so much. It's always great to have you on the show. My pleasure, as always. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, this is Bridget Hios. I'm the author of It's Getting Hot in Here, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another great author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 